Well, good morning, everyone. So thankful for the opportunity that we have week by week to gather, to sit under the authority of God's holy word and to worship him and to get ready for what we shall do forever, which is to worship him and enjoy his presence and it's good for us to keep on practicing. But I have a question as we begin this morning. How many of you just feel tired? It's been my observation over the past several weeks that this has just been a tough stretch. Tough stretch for our church, tough stretch for our culture, maybe tough stretch going on in your family. And there's kind of that longing sigh that we have. Oh, Lord, how long? And I just want you to know this morning that you're not alone. The Lord is with you. He promises to walk with you through the challenges, whatever they are. Sometimes the challenges are emotional. Sometimes the challenges are medical. Sometimes they're financial. Sometimes they're relational. Sometimes it's just us. So before we get into a time in the Word this morning, I actually just want to pray. Pray that we would just feel our burdens lifted, our hearts filled with his joy, and we just hand over to him all the struggles and trials that we have. Let's let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can turn to you. Thank you, Father, that you've said that those that wait upon you shall have the strength renewed. And Father, we sense that this morning. We need our strength renewed. We need the refreshment that can only come from your Holy Spirit. And so we thank you that even as we sing that Christ is the true and steady anchor, the sure and steady force and hope in our lives, we cling to that afresh this morning and confess that it is true. The burdens that we carry, Father, because of sin and sadness and brokenness and troubles that seem to abound, We thank you that in Christ we are overcomers because he has already overcome and his is the victory. So remind us this morning, Father, as we stand at the beginning of this holy week where we reflect anew and afresh on who the Lord Jesus is and what he has done for us. Father, would you cause us to be quick to cast our burdens at his feet, to receive strength in his spirit and to confess his goodness day by day. Thank you, Father, that we tend to our needs and you hear us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, next Sunday, Easter Sunday, will be a little bit different morning than what we typically have. We're going to, as you've already seen, we're going to have a fellowship breakfast starting at 9, and then we'll have a worship celebration at 10 with music and congregational singing and time of prayer and scripture reading, and it's going to be wonderful but I have to ask for your forgiveness because I won't be there. Several months ago, I made arrangements for my wife and I to go to a national conference called Together for the Gospel, a gathering of Christian leaders from across the country, and I very dutifully prepared all my travel schedule so that we could leave late Sunday afternoon and, and arrive at our destination on time 
And well, if you've done any traveling post-COVID, you know that the airlines change your tickets all the time. So I thought I was being so clever by saving a few hundred dollars a ticket by leaving Sunday afternoon instead of Monday morning. And then they moved the tickets up a few hours earlier, which means we have to leave after breakfast next week. And uh, their, their option was accept what we've given or cancel the ticket and buy new tickets, which would have been several hundred dollars more per person. So Pastor Brian is going to stand in next week in the pulpit. I ask you to pray for him this week. I know he's going to do a great job. And we will follow as best as we can online. I wish it wasn't this way. <laughs> but, you know, as the old saying goes, when man plans, God laughs. And so we just have to move with it. And um, I was also reminded that perhaps next time I should come back to the congregation, explain the situation, and, and say maybe, maybe you could help me go a little later. So I apologize for not doing that. But I will be in prayer for you. I will follow online. The Lord is still risen whether I'm here or not, and we'll have a great time of celebration all the same. But I just want to let you know so you're not surprised if Carol and I slip out before service uh, gets underway next week. Well, let's get into the Word of God. One year there was a... Uh-oh, we have the wrong one. So while you guys are redoing it, let's go ahead and get started. We're in Matthew 5, verses 21 to 26, and we'll just depend on what's happening up here. One, one New Year's Eve at a famous club in England, the members were gathered for a celebration. One of the dramatists that was there, because this was a club of famous actors and performers and poets in, in England, his name was Frederick Lonsdale. He had another friend, Seymour Hicks, who knew that Lonsdale was at odds with another member. And so Seymour Hicks comes over to Lonsdale and he knew that at some time in the past these two men had been quarreling and they had never gotten around to restoring their friendship. So on that occasion, Seymour Hicks said to Lonsdale, really, you should go and reconcile. It's very unkind to be unfriendly at such a time. Go over to him now on this joyous occasion and wish him a happy new year. Lonsdale promptly crossed the room and he fulfilled the letter of the law as he turned to him and he said, I wish you a happy new year, but only one. There is so much pain, division, suffering, anger, difficulty that is caused by anger between people. And if that anger is not resolved, it quickly can turn to bitterness which creeps into the human heart. And if it's not dealt rightly and promptly, it can actually cause hatred to build up. It can cause resentment to grow. And it clouds our vision of what the other person is like. It can even lead to more sinister things such as trying to do them harm. Well, as we continue in our sermon series this morning in the Gospel according to Matthew, Jesus is going to challenge the attitudes and thinking of the people of his day in light of the, the new covenant. And so as he continues with his Sermon on the Mount, he's going to teach his disciples about life in the kingdom of heaven and how that life has a higher quality, one that is more deeply rooted in the truth and the character of God. Now, last week, I believe we're 
or caught up. Thank you very much, friend. So let's go ahead and get caught up here. Jesus challenged us with the reality of two types of righteousness, one that is human and the other is divine. He compared the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees who through their own efforts, their rigorous following the law, thought that they could please God but would find that ultimately they cannot satisfy the holy demands of God. But by contrast, there's the righteousness of Christ put on our account through faith at the moment that we believe. And that, that righteousness of Christ alone can satisfy the demands of God, who alone can empower us to live out the true intentions of the law that comes from God. And so as we are those who must continue to obey, as it were, and follow the law, recognize that it now comes because, because we have a new power, a new orientation. We're citizens of a new kingdom. We have a new king. We have a new direction in life. And so as we've already seen over the past several weeks, as Jesus climbs the mountain as a new Moses, bringing in the new covenant, he's clarifying the intentions of God as he gives the law. And he will speak with divine authority, divine expectation. But he will also give the commands of God as they were originally intended to be understood. And so beginning today in chapter 5, verse 21, and continuing down in chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus will take six specific examples of the Old Testament law, show how the scribes and Pharisees had moved a little bit from its original intention, and will get to the heart of the matter, which is the matter of the heart, and how we are to fully understand and obey the law. And today, if God should... Strengthen us till the end. We will look at the first example, which is found in Matthew 5, verses 21 to 26. And although we have already spent a good deal of time standing, I'm going to bid you please rise one more time in honor of God and his word as we read our passage for this morning. And the wonderful and altogether true word of God says, You have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guards and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. May the Lord be pleased to add his blessing to the reading of his word. Receive it as it is intended, a timely blessing this morning. Please be seated. We begin this morning as you follow in your sermon outline, and for those of you following at home or perhaps following along on our church app, you have the outline right there in the church app, and you can fill in the blanks as we go along in the sermon this morning. Our first major point this morning is do not murder. Jesus is going to talk about how the standards of the kingdom of heaven are higher than the kingdoms of men. In 
In general, Jesus is going to focus more on the outward application than on the inward. Now, Jesus is going to focus on the inward motivation more on the outward application. That is what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing. But Jesus is going to try to bring his readers to understand, his followers, those that are listening in that day, that he's not going against the law of Moses, but is giving the true interpretation and understanding of the law of Moses. He knows that he's in step with what Moses has given, and he will actually challenge them and say, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for Moses wrote of me. So there's no contradiction between what Moses gave and what Jesus will give. But Jesus is going to get to the real issue. He's going to go beyond the literal, wooden, exact interpretation of the law in merely an outward sense and will analyze the thoughts and attitudes behind those actions, whether the actions are actually performed or not. He's going to get to the heart of the matter. But Jesus understands the wisdom that was given to Solomon in Proverbs 4. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it will flow the springs of life. He's going to get beyond just the superficial understanding to the root of the matter. You see, over time, the religious leaders had so dumbed down the understanding of the law that they made it possible to actually fulfill it. Just promoting a type of self-righteousness, a form of checklist. This is what you have to do. I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. And they get all caught up in their own sense of worth and ability and righteousness. But Jesus comes and he says, the kingdom of heaven is different. The results will be different. The type of life will be different. The attitudes will be different. In fact, with Jesus gives the true intention of the law, he wants us to see that his teachings are so difficult that they seem unworkable and even impossible in the real world. And that is the intent of the law. The intent of the law was to show us that we cannot do it ourselves. The intent of the law is to lead us to Christ. The intent of the law is to bring us to the end of ourselves so that all of the glory and all of the privilege and all of the power will go to the Lord Jesus Christ. The law, you recall, was originally given to Israel as they were redeemed out of the slavery of Egypt. And in a similar way, then, when we are redeemed out of the slavery to sin, we are now to follow the law, to live out as a redeemed people, what it looks like to be those that God has set apart. The Pharisees and the scribes, enamored with their own studies, would often quote from other scholars, but very rarely give their own opinions. But Jesus will say again and again, but I say to you, he's going to show that he speaks with true divine authority, not mere human authority. And that will become more clear as we move through the Sermon on the Mount. So we begin with, do not murder. And Jesus says, you have heard that it was said of, to those of old. And he will repeat something like this six times throughout Matthew chapter 5. He knows that the law was of divine origin. And so he's going to compare with his listeners of that day what was given then to what he is teaching now as the proper understanding of the law. And as I've said, he focuses more on the inward motivations than on the outward application. Now, Jesus will never limit the significance of the outward application. He will clearly say that murder is wrong, that adultery is wrong, that lying is wrong, that divorce is wrong, that revenge is wrong. 
but he will give the deeper intention of the law behind each of those things. He will move beyond the specific rules to the larger principles that should govern a redeemed people, that will resemble the Jesus people as they walk according to his way and his power and according to his rules. He will show that the law is essentially something that is good because it reflects the good and holy and wonderful character of God. And it's not just the avoidance of wrong behavior. It's the promotion of good and virtuous behavior. And he's going to move us as he moved that first century audience beyond what they can do in the flesh and the power of their own strength to what can only be accomplished in the power of the spirit. And so he speaks of murder as a willing offense. A willing offense. You shall not murder. And when saying that this was heard of those long ago, he's referring to the giving of the law of Moses as the prophet was on Mount Sinai in fellowship with God. And as he received the law from God, he then read it to the people. But the problem is that there was a lot of development in the law, changing an understanding of the law in the intervening centuries. Because between the time when Moses received the law and Jesus now here and, and teaching about the law, there was a period of 1,400 years. You can imagine the different ideas and interpretations and understandings and applications that would be added during that time. And it would be compounded by the fact that people didn't have the blessing that we have today where we can carry around a copy of God's word, or we can have it on our smartphone, or we can have it on our computer. There were not copies of the law that people could carry around. They would have to go to the synagogue. They'd have to go to the temple to hear it, hear it read. And so the people even of Jesus' day would be among those who have heard it said and then would be given the application and interpretation by the scribes and the Pharisees. So you can see the problem that would develop in the popular folk way of thinking over this period of time. Well, Jesus is quoting from the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. And the Hebrew word here, rasah, indicates the willing taking of a human life, which we understand to be murder. Therefore, it is a more correct translation than perhaps some of the older translations that said, you shall not kill. What is prohibited here is the action of intentionally taking the life of someone or being involved in the same. It's a prohibition of homicide, not necessarily of all killing, as we might find in the case with animals or in defending your home or in the case of warfare. What is specifically condemned is the intentional design and taking away of the life of another person. And that's why we refer to someone who does that as a murderer, and we understand that it is not a good thing. Therefore, the one who is a murderer is subject to a just punishment. And Jesus goes on and says, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. In fact, he's quoting what it is that they have heard. This is a judgment that could refer to the court of men. It could refer to the court of God. But what's interesting is this particular phrase is not actually found in either rendition of the Ten Commandments either in Exodus 20 or in Deuteronomy 5. But surely this is how it was understood in the time of Jesus. Perhaps where they got the idea was not from Deuteronomy 5 or Exodus 20, but from Genesis 9-6, where God instituted the death penalty after the time of the flood of Noah, where he said to Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. 
For God made man in his own image. Now, God is the one that instituted capital punishment, but it was to be meted out according to official rulings and not by vigilante justice. Even the punishment of criminals needs to uphold their, their value and dignity as created in the image of God. So how we carry out justice is as important as carrying out justice, that we treat the criminals with the dignity that they have as fellow image bearers of God. So why is murder wrong? On the one hand, we might say, well, it's a simple question. But think of the time in which we live where we want to go towards moral relativism. Well, she came and spoke her truth. Or you have your truth. Well, in such a context then, why is murder even wrong? Because by what standard do we decide that it is wrong for one to take the life of another? You see the silliness that we have bound ourselves into because of our cultural relativism. We ultimately really can't make a moral declaration about anything because we don't have a moral foundation. But we as the people of God have a moral foundation. We have the ultimate foundation. We have the revelation of God. And we understand then that to intentionally take the life of another person is, of course, an offense against that person. But it is also an offense against a holy God who created that person in his image. And so ultimately it becomes an offense against fellow human beings and against the creator of the universe. And so properly applied, understanding God and his justice, the death penalty can be used as an equitable and just punishment. And that's why the law gave specific requirements for how it was to be used, not to be abused, how to be properly used. And so, during my years in ministry where I have often gone and walked in pro-life rallies supporting the, the dignity and life of the unborn and wanting to take care of their mothers in their times of need, I have been asked the question, how can you be against abortion and for capital punishment? And I say the answer is easy. Because both positions, not only are they biblical, both positions uphold the ultimate dignity of human life. If you take the life of someone else, you forfeit your own right to live. That's how valuable each life is. And so it's a question then of protecting the innocent and punishing the guilty. Now my caveat is that it needs to be carried out in a way that is also biblical. It is also upholding the dignity of the process. It is not just an automatic thing that should be done. But Jesus starts out by saying, do not murder. And on the surface, that's the easy part. But he also says, do not be angry. Because strictly speaking, and thankfully so, most people keep the commandment, you shall not murder. They've not used their own hands or their own planning or their own weapons to take another person's life. This is obviously a good thing, obviously promotes social order, obviously something that a civilized people should do. It's also evidence of God's common grace. And in his common grace, he restrains evil, he restrains injustice. In his common grace, he has given police officers, he has given court systems whereby crimes can be properly punished. But Jesus is going to go beyond the actual action of murder to the deeper cause of it. 
Remember last week, Jesus said, therefore, do not relax the law, but apply it as it is intended. And so as Jesus will do with this one, as he will do all throughout Matthew 5, he does not relax the law at all, but in fact makes it more difficult to live out and apply. And that's the whole point. That if our righteousness has surpassed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, it must be an alien righteousness that is not inherently ours. It must be a righteousness that comes from a different source. And of course it is in our Lord Jesus Christ. But in his command not to be angry with one another, he says, mind your thoughts. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. For Jesus, there is more to this commandment of you shall not murder than simply not to take the life of another person. He's saying it's not enough just to not kill the body of a person, you're also not to harm them in any other way, in their person, in their reputation, in their character. This is a serious warning that he gives, but it's affirmed by the Apostle John himself. Look at what John says. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And the word for brother in 1 John and the word for brother here in Matthew 5 has to do with a fellow believer. That's its first application. But of course, it would also refer to human beings writ large. And Jesus will give three applications, or at least three aspects, if you will, over the next couple of verses. The first one will deal specifically with the heart and mind. Careful what percolates in your heart and mind. But then the next two will show that words and actions that proceed from the heart and mind. And I think Jesus, what he is doing is getting more and more descriptive of the consequences of being angry at your brother. He wants us to understand that being angry with someone attacks their identity and their value as God's image bearers. And he says this doesn't just happen. The sin of murder doesn't just happen. It begins in the heart, in the thoughts of a person. It starts out as malice of forethought that leads to murderous action. Jesus understands that the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. For as he will say later in the Gospel of Matthew when rebuking these religious leaders, he will say, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth speaks. You want to know what's on the heart of someone? You want to know what's on your heart? Listen to what comes forth from your lips. Listen to what comes forth from the lips of others. The lips don't betray the heart. They reveal what is in the heart. Jesus is not going to play games with his followers. He gets to the heart of the matter. I've heard it said that a rattlesnake, if cornered, can sometimes get so angry that it will bite itself. That's an illustration, as it were, of what we do when we harbor hate and resentment towards others. We end up harming ourselves. We think that we're harming others by holding on to that grudge, holding on to our dignity, holding on to our honor. But we're actually harming ourselves. And anger becomes then this dangerous emotion, one that hurts relationships, ruins families, destroys marriages, damages reputations. 
We got to see an illustration of that in living color just a couple weeks ago. Ask a certain actor about the damage that anger can cause. For as James 1.20 says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so as Jesus says, mind your thoughts, he goes on and says, mind your words. Now, when we hear about anger, our first defense mechanism is to say, but there is a righteous anger. There is a just anger. That's true. God gets angry, but God abounds in steadfast love. God's anger is always just when it is expressed, always in the perfect proportion, always with divine intention. Jesus himself showed anger at sin, at injustice, at unrighteousness. But he was always just in the expression of that anger and was always ready to forgive. He lived out the principles of James 1.19, which says, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to anger, slow to speak. Jesus, Jesus' anger was for the sake of others, not for himself. But sadly, our anger is often not that way. Our anger all too often is thin-skinned, petulant, taking offense at the slightest perception of wrongdoing for honor and not worrying so much about the honor of God. If you've ever been a parent, if you've ever been a teacher, if you've ever been a referee, if you've ever been a leader in any group whatsoever, you have experienced the result of unjust anger, of that lashing out, of that critical word, of that unreflected remark. But Jesus says that that type of anger is harmful because it can kill someone's name and ruin his reputation. But it can also ruin yours. We don't want to be known as that guy or that person with the short fuse around whom everyone just walks on eggshells because we're afraid of the next eruption. Because an outburst of anger can cause long-term damage in so many ways. And so words are not just words. Words are weapons that can cause great harm. How often have we said things like, I could just wring his neck. If only I could get my hands on him. Boy, I'd give him a piece of my mind when it's really more than your mind you want to give them. Language like that damages the person. It damages us. It damages the soul. This is dangerous. A lady once came to the famous evangelist Billy Sunday, not Billy Graham, Billy Sunday, who preached 100 years ago, and tried to rationalize her outburst of anger. She said, well, there's nothing wrong with me losing my temper. I just blow up and it's over. And the famous evangelist said, yep, just like a shotgun. And look at the damage the shotgun causes. So Jesus continues, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. When we hear these serious words, we recognize, do we not? We are all in trouble. And the word for insults here is the Greek word raka. It's a term used to question someone's intelligence. It's the equivalent of saying, you idiot. You numbskull, you dummy. It's expressions that consider someone worthless. 
is to be guilty of the sin of contempt for another person. And a person who says something like this is to be put on trial, as it were, before the ruling council of the people of that day. And so there is a type of judgment that can happen before men, but there's also a type of judgment that happens before God, and that can happen from calling someone a fool. To call someone a fool moves from insulting the intelligent to questioning his character. The Greek word is more. You might recognize the word moron, because that's where it comes from. It's more than just questioning their ability. It's questioning their character and their moral judgment. When the Bible calls someone a fool, such as the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's not a question of his intellectual ability. It's a judgment on his moral character. He's in rebellion against God in his heart and his soul and his mind. And it is just these kind of words that Jesus says we need to avoid when talking about others. <laughs> Feeling undone yet? All of us at this point before the court of mercy are undone. Think about the oyster. The oyster takes a grain of sand and turns it into a beautiful pearl. But too often we do exactly the opposite. We take that beautiful pearl, created in the image of God, and grind it into sand through our words. When we insult others, we are attacking the image of God and saying it's really not of that much value. As Charles Spurgeon says, Jesus warns against not only the overt act of killing, but every thought, feeling, and word which would tend to injure a brother or annihilate him by contempt. And so as we hear these words, mind your thoughts, mind your words, we need to recognize that the warning is real. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Yes, there may be a judgment on me of men for the words of men, but there will always be the judgment of God who reads our hearts, who weighs the mind and the intentions of both. The word for hell here is Gehenna. It comes from the valley of Hinnom, located to the southwest of Jerusalem. It has a very <sighs> infamous history. During the time of the Canaanites, it was where babies were offered as fiery sacrifices to the god Moloch as they were tossed into the fire. It represents a place of moral deprivation and punishment by fire. There are some traditions that say that this was the garbage dump of Jerusalem where all of the refuse and garbage from the temple and from the city would be brought and burned. And so continuously there was fire and smoke and the stench. And Jesus used this as a symbol, as a sign of hell, of eternal punishment, where the fire does not go out and where the worm does not die. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? This is that hatred that we have towards other human beings, insulting their character, brings us into the danger of hellfire. And remember that our righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. They outwardly kept the law. But Jesus is going to the heart of the matter. Oh, and there's the problem, right? We don't understand the gospel until we understand the truth. 
And the truth of the matter is that in our hearts, we are all men. We've all uttered words of contempt, words of judgment, words of condemnation. And it's frightening to think that according to what Jesus is saying here, some in this room have murdered others in this room by their words. We need Jesus. We need the gospel. And now, my friends, hear the good news. Think of what happened to Jesus. He was, in the clearest sense of the word, murdered. Murdered by those who hated him. Murdered by those who uttered words of contempt against him. And if biblically speaking, we were among his murderers, which we were because it was our sin that drove him to the cross. He took that sin upon himself. And he was murdered with malice aforethought and was intentionally put to death on the part of the religious and Roman leaders. But God. But God. Because Jesus was murdered for us. United with Christ. Received by him into his holy presence. Declared forgiven and righteous. We are now set free and clear of murder in God's eyes. Don't ever underestimate the power of the cross. Don't ever underestimate the significance of what he did. And may this week cause a refreshing and renewal of your deep appreciation for what he has done. And now, indwelt by the Spirit of God, we can fulfill the law to love our neighbor as ourselves to please God, to serve him well, and to not be angry. And so he goes on and says, deal with your brother. Jesus calls out to live out these principles on a daily basis. He's moving from the general second person plural, y'all, in verses 21 and 22, to you, second person singular in 23 and 24. And so he says, keep your priorities straight. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. He says, stop what you are doing. There's something more important than your religious and worship actions. Jesus is not making it easy on his disciples. Now we know that there has to be mutual responsibility here, that the one who has been wronged and the one that who has wronged are to seek reconciliation. And we need to understand that there is a difference between an offense given and an offense taken. Which is why then we need to speak to each other so that clarification comes, so that reconciliation can happen. But there are cases where there is a legitimate concern. Offense has been given and offense needs to be dealt with and it needs to be addressed. And so what does he say? Think of where Jesus is teaching. He's teaching in Galilee, not in Jerusalem. And a faithful Jew would go to Jerusalem two to three times a year to offer the offerings that were required. Jerusalem, my friends, was 80 miles away. And you would take the trip on foot. So you pack up for your trip. You pack your bags. You load your animals. 
You take the animals that you're going to the temple to sacrifice. And he says, while you are at the temple, at the altar, if you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. Do you feel the weight of what he's saying? The weight of getting our priorities straight if we want to properly worship, worship God. He prioritizes reconciliation over worship. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Right relationships demand right actions, which then prepare us for right worship. Reconciliation is a critical and integral part of the gospel itself. Think of what the prophet Micah said long before Jesus. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. It means be reconciled with others. It involves action, intentionality, effort. It was not easy. It wasn't easy then. Jesus is making a point here. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. What might that look like today? Maybe before we drop the offering in, in the box in the back. Or praying. We go and reconcile. That's why we emphasize settling accounts before we come to the Lord's table. So that we are truly living out and giving testimony to what we say. We are one in Christ, united in Christ because of Christ. When Jesus, and this is the context of saying, you shall not murder. You see the deeper implication of what he is saying. It doesn't mean just simply do not take their physical life. Don't harm them. And so this week as we remember and reflect on what Jesus went through for us. Maybe this is a good week to write that letter, to make that phone call, to send that text message, to go on that visit, to even sit in that office if you know you need to go. We do that. Think of the joyous celebration we will have next week as we experience a freshness in the forgiveness that we have in Christ a freshness in the forgiveness we can offer to one another, a freshness in reconciling with one another. Paul warns us not to let a root of bitterness seep into our hearts. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Because once bitterness settles in the heart, it is very difficult to get out. And that bitterness begins to distort all that we think and feel and act towards whoever it is with whom we're not in agreement. And now we, we don't see them in the way that we should see them. But we know that we've not done that for God. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We need to continually to receive the grace and mercy of Christ. We need to have him empower us. That's what Jesus came to do. And since he is our righteousness, and faultless before the throne we stand in him, he empowers us now to go and live out that righteousness with others. So we deal with our brother and we deal with others. Verses 23 and 24 seem to be dealing with primarily the family of God, but the next two verses clearly show interacting with our fellow human beings, whoever it might be. 
It shows that we need to exercise caution and wisdom and gentleness and respect in our interactions with those in the greater culture. And there'll be different problems that we will run into simply because we live in a fallen and sinful world. There will be problems that we'll run into because we are Christians. There'll be problems that we run into because we did it. We need to learn how to be reconciled. Learn, learn how to be uh, peacemakers that Jesus talked about earlier in the chapter. Blessed are the peacemakers. So they'll be called the sons of God. So we might translate this as make a new friend. It says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Some type of accusation has been made, and Jesus says, rather than go through the court system, deal with it quickly. And this phrase, come to terms quickly with your accuser, can be translated as make friends quickly along the way. It's the idea of develop a, a positive disposition towards the person. Work together to find a resolution, to find a solution. It's living out that commandment of or the blessing of blessed are the peacemakers because he says find a resolution because one way or the other the debt will be paid lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison there's urgency here make arrangements to pay off the debt instead of just going through all of the legal machinations we think well I'm going to take him to court but I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, many go into court to get wool, but come out closely shorn. Rather than put our, our lives, as it were, into the hands, perhaps, of sinful magistrates, it's better for us to reconcile. So Jesus gives a, a warning. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Jesus saying, we will be held responsible and accountable for what we do. And in the immediate context, in the immediate application, this is a human event. Two humans are going to court. They need to do it, and one of them is a believer, and he needs to act according to a believer. But is not the whole context one of a much larger eternal significance? Here's talking about what kingdom life looks like. And if our righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, how possibly can we stand before God? To whom is owed the ultimate debt. And we are the ultimate debtor. Because we've sinned against God. We'll stand before his tribunal one day. And so if we imagine then that all we have is this life. And we owe a debt to God. While we are on the way from the door of entry to the door of exit. Reconcile with him along the way before we appear before his tribunal and are thrown into the ultimate prison from which we will never escape. You see, a sin, any sin against an eternal God, requires eternal punishment. And the only way it can be forgiven is eternal redemption and eternal forgiveness, and that only comes through Christ. I think Paul would say today is the day of salvation. While we hear the word today on the way, be reconciled with God. And as we're reconciled with God through Jesus Christ, he then empowers us to be reconciled with those around us who equally need to go through the process of reconciliation. Think about that. That's the whole purpose of these events. Although Jesus came to, 
And so Jesus warns us against the madness of anger, be it literally murder, or as is more likely or as likely the murdering of another's reputation or character. Remember, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. They are those who recognize they can't do it, but God can. The command to not murder, and we understand it according to how Jesus interpreted it, exceeds our fleshly capacity. And that's the point. It causes us to fall before Christ and be clothed in his righteousness, be filled with his spirit, that we can obey his law. And so because we're in him, he now empowers us to take the steps to not only root out the anger in our own lives, but to reconcile with others with a way of life. And it's not easy. If we were to have another sermon, we would talk about the effects of bitterness and unforgiveness. And I'll give you the short summary. They're not good. But the effects of forgiveness, of walking in mercy with one another, are transformational. Both to your individual lives, to our life as a family, or life as believers in the church. Now this next week, we're going to celebrate Easter. We have a great resurrection celebration next week, and we'll get back to Matthew in a couple of weeks, and Lord willing, I'm back here. I hope to be back in two weeks in the pulpit, and we'll continue on in Matthew chapter 5. But what are some lessons that perhaps the Lord would want us to take from our time today? Because each person is created in the image of God, I would treat him with dignity, an attitude worthy than I. Because I'm not to harm my brother, I depend on Christ. And I probably should put the word alone there. I depend on Christ alone to kill sin in my life so that I do not murder my brother in any way. Because sin begins in the heart, I will ask God to continually purify and cleanse my soul. When we get later on into the Gospel of Matthew, he's going to give us the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. It's a daily practice that we need to be doing. And because true worship flows from a pure heart and clean relationships, in Christ's power I will pursue reconciliation. pursue reconciliation in my life. This is a hard word, but it's a good word because it takes our focus off of ourselves. It puts it where it belongs on the one who is all sufficient and all holy and all good, and he is the one that gives us strength. So let us go to him now in prayer. Our God and our King, we thank you for the gospel but until we understand the depth of sin, we don't fully understand the gospel. Until we understand the junk in our own hearts, we don't appreciate what it is to have a clean heart. And so thank you for the mercy of the gospel that cleanses, that helps, that purifies, that enables. And Father, as you have spoken to us during this time together, would you remind us throughout this week of what you have asked us to do and give us the strength to apply it so that you will be glorified as we commit ourselves to you, to you right now in Jesus' name.